If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Acts 21 tonight. Acts 21, we'll be reading the first 14 verses of that chapter, and we'll also be looking back at chapter 20 for a few, uh, a few verses that uh, go along with what we are studying tonight. Um, some of the things that Paul talked about uh, in his uh, speech and meeting with the elders at Ephesus foreshadow what he goes through um, from this point forward in the book of Acts, um, add some texture and context to the choices that he makes tonight and he will make going forward. I mentioned last week that Acts 21 through the end is going to feel a little bit different than the previous 20 chapters. And I want to kind of explain that a little bit more up front um, because Acts 21 through 28 um, is very focused on Paul, even though he's been a character and been the main focus for a little while. It's a little bit different because Paul goes on a very personal journey over the next um, eight chapters. Um, even though Paul has been the main character, the main focus since chapter 13 when he got saved and then he joined the church and then he begins his missionary journeys um, from Antioch, uh, the focus has been on not really Paul the person, but Paul the missionary and Paul uh, the church planter. And we've talked about and we've read about how he planted churches all across Turkey and all across Greece. Uh, the story, though, and the larger narrative uh, was really centered around the church's growth. And Paul was just a, a means and a vessel that all that was going on through. Um, and uh, to kind of talk about Luke's writing style and kind of Luke's approach in Acts, um, it's kind of been what I call a zoom in and a zoom out approach. Um, zoom in as in Luke has been telling the story of the church growing. He zooms in to certain places. He zooms in to certain people uh, and he talks about what transpires there, whether it was at Iconium or whether it was at Ephesus or Thessalonica or Philippi. He zooms in to these uh, little episodes that no doubt were just one of many that took place during this early church boom. Uh, he zooms in and then he zooms out and he connects it to the larger church story. Um, he shows how this fits into the bigger picture, and he kind of brings perspective to it and talks about how this was part of the Great Commission. So again, when you read Acts, you'll notice that he talks about they're going on this journey, and he says some went this way and some went that way, but then he zooms in on somebody particular, whether it was Philip at Samaria, uh, Peter with Cornelius, Paul, and all the different places that he went. He zooms in on them, and then he backs up, and he kind of brings perspective to it all. And if you read all throughout Acts, and, and I encourage you, um, if you haven't done this already, if you're following along, go back sometime and take a highlighter or a pen. And at the end of those stories, when he zooms back out and he kind of wraps everything up, notice how many times those stories end with something like this. Many were added to the church. The word of God increased and multiplied. The name of the Lord was exalted and extolled. Or the disciples were strengthened and encouraged. That after all those episodes, they all have a similar ending. And if you, if you drop into Acts 8 or Acts 11 or Acts 19, you'll see that many of them end with some of these or all of these even. The church grew. The word of God was spread. The name of God was exalted. And the church or disciples were strengthened. And again, that's kind of Luke's zoom-in model. He zooms in on Paul or Peter or Philip or so-and-so, and then he zooms out, and he says this is just an episode of what God was doing on a much larger scale. This is one person of many of the people that he was working through. This is just one sermon of many that were preached. So I hope that this kind of adds some perspective. Um, and just like we are just one church and a much larger story, right? Every Sunday, we zoom in on what God is doing at Risen. And every day, we zoom in on what God is doing in our personal lives, in our you know, places and, that we go and things that we do. But if you zoom out, 
God is doing a work all around us, and we're just a part of that. And, and thank God we're a part of it, but also thank God that there's a bigger picture that we can kind of sink in with and, and plug into. Uh, again, go throughout Acts and just highlight however many times you see that, and you'll have a lot of color on your pages uh, and a lot of verses marked because you'll see this at the end of the passage or the end of the chapter particularly. Uh, but going forward, we won't see much of this. Not that God isn't working and not that the church isn't growing, but going forward, the story really isn't about the church as it has been. The story is going to be about Paul on a very personal journey. And I think that there's something that we, there's a connection we can find in the Gospels uh, because what we see from this point on to the end of Acts is similar to what happens around three-fourths of the way through the Gospels with Jesus and with the ministry of Jesus. And I don't think it's a coincidence. I think that's a very intentional thing. Um, And let me explain. The first three-fourths of the Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, are all about Jesus and his disciples on the mission field. And it's Jesus in a group. It's Jesus in the multitude. It's Jesus going into city and city and town and town and with crowds and miracles and signs and wonders. But then there's a particular point that we'll look out later. There's a particular point where Jesus heads to Jerusalem for Passover in 30 AD. And all of a sudden the focus goes specifically on Jesus and his personal journey over that week or over that 10-day period of him going to Jerusalem and spending it in that last week of his life. We see a focus on his relationships with the religious leaders, with the disciples, but it's from a very, it's it's from Jesus's eyes, not the crowds. If you read the first part of the gospels, it's how the crowds receive Jesus. But the last part of the Gospels, it's through Jesus' eyes himself. And I think that's a very specific transition. And we see that in Acts as Paul goes to Jerusalem, similar to Jesus, right? Paul goes to Jerusalem. But, of course, his destiny is different than Jesus. But it is similar in theme. Now, we know that Paul had a heart to go back to Jerusalem. Um, and he had, some, he had a multi-layered motive in going back to Jerusalem, which is what he talked about in chapter 20. He said to the Ephesian elders, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem. I don't really know what's going to happen, but I know why I'm going and I know that I need to go. And, and, and there's two reasons why Paul was going back to Jerusalem. First off, his heart was set on winning the Jewish people to Jesus. So Paul, you read Romans 9 and 10, he expresses this. Paul was a Jew. He had previously been a zealot for the Jewish religion. He had warped it into this you know, point of killing Christians because he was protecting the Jewish faith, or he thought he was. Paul knew he had it wrong, but then Jesus saved him, and he was he was so focused on winning more Jews to Christ because, of course, it came, the gospel came to them first and it broke his heart to see them reject it. And Paul's particular goal was to show them that Christianity did not threaten their faith, but it was a fulfillment to it. And we've talked about this in, in our small groups. We've talked about this in many messages before. That Christianity did not threaten Judaism, but it fulfilled it and it finished the story. They thought it was already finished. But of course, Jesus showed them there was something that they were missing. It was a final sacrifice. It was what the law and the temple could not do. So Paul wanted the Jews to realize what he had realized, and he wanted to close that loop. And we're going to see that as he ministers to Jerusalem, as he preaches to the Jews, chapter 21, 22 specifically. But he also had another goal and another reason for going back to Jerusalem. Paul was convinced that he had to reach Rome. 
You think, well, why is he going to Jerusalem if he wants to go to Rome? Because Paul knew that he would not get to Rome except through a very particular means in a very specific way. And Paul was convinced that if he went to Jerusalem, it would kickstart his trip to Rome. And we'll see how he ends up there. And it's a wild trip, but it works out exactly how he thought it would. He was convinced that he had to get to Rome in order to reach the necessary people with the gospel to enact the most change in the empire. So Paul knew if he gets to Rome, he could preach to the Pacific people that he needed to so that he might bring the most change about to the empire. Not that he thought the Romans were more important, but that was the heart of the empire. And if he could change their hearts, the sky was the limit for the whole church. And of course, we know history tells that that's exactly what would happen. So the last part of Acts talks about this twofold passion of Paul. And it's really interesting because to kind of spoil the story, Paul is going to be arrested in Jerusalem by the Jews, and then he's going to be sentenced by Rome. They initially think he's going to, they're going to kill him, but he ends up not dying until many, many years later. But do you notice that that is similar to the story of Jesus? that Jesus was arrested by the Jews and then they turned him over to Rome and then Rome sentenced him to death. So there's a very clear connection between the last part of the Gospels, the last part of Acts, Jesus arrested by Jews, sentenced by Rome, Paul arrested by Jews, sentenced by Rome. Now all this happened naturally, mind you, but I think Luke is leaning into this as he tells this story. Remember, he wrote two volumes. He wrote the volume of Luke, the Gospel of Luke about Jesus and the, and the story of Acts about the church. And he leans into how Paul is going down a similar road to that of Jesus. You know why he's doing this? Because Luke is trying to tell the story about how the church has been called to spread the gospel, but also to follow in the steps of Christ and Luke leans into this, and over the next few chapters, Luke is going to show how Paul literally was following in the steps of Jesus, driven by the same passion and struck by similar trials. Now, I don't think that's a coincidence, do you? I think, but I, I think that all this happened, of course, as Paul was following in the steps of Jesus with the same passion, he would face similar trials. Now, I want us to see what Luke is doing here. Luke is trying to send a message that, about what he thinks are the true marks of a Christian and a true mark of a disciple. And he makes an example about how Paul exemplified what it meant to follow Jesus because it, he goes down this very same road that Jesus did. Now, we've covered Jesus' teaching in the Gospels plenty, but I want to kind of set this up for us. Luke's gospel especially gives attention to the cost and the reward of discipleship. And he is going to highlight how Paul was so focused on being a disciple that he endured the cost, embraced the cost, because he knew there was a reward unlike any other. Now, about the cost, let's reflect on what Jesus said, and then we'll talk about how Paul was obedient. Jesus talked about the cost of discipleship throughout all the gospels, but again, Luke's writing this volume. So let's look at how Luke talked about it. Jesus said in Luke chapter nine, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily 
and follow me. Now, again, Luke is trying to position this as literally follow in the steps of Jesus. Paul was doing that in so much that he even went down the same road. Again, symbolically, he was following in the steps of Christ, taking up his cross, going wherever Jesus led him to go. And then Jesus explained it this way. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That even if it looks like there's cost, there's gain in that. And he asked the question that we've asked so many times. What does it profit a man if he gained the whole world but lost or forfeited his soul or himself? Now, we know the answer to that. Jesus made sure we know the answer to that. But again, Luke wants us to know this is what being a disciple is all about. Later on in that same chapter, as they were going down the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus. I am your guide. Now, we never know this guy's name. That's how famous, that's how devoted he was, which uh, should tell us something. This guy, who we don't know who it was, says, I will follow you wherever you go. Sign me up. I'm in no matter what. And then Jesus, I guess, knew this guy was kind of flimsy. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Are you really in? Spoiler alert, this guy never was heard of again. So he heard Jesus say this. You think, why would Jesus run this guy off? Because Jesus was making it clear that a disciple is willing to follow God no matter what, even if it is to the most costly place possible. Nowhere to lay his head. No security, no comfort, no place in this world that gives you what many other things offer you. Jesus said later on, yet, or it says later on, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Of course, that's harmless. That seems like an upstanding thing to do, but Jesus knew this was just an excuse. He says, no one puts his hands to the plow and looks back. It's fit for the kingdom of God. Now, I bring this up because what Acts does for us is shows us people who were fit for the kingdom of God. There was no questioning their devotion. Luke doesn't just emphasize the cost, though. He also makes clear there is a greater reward to be found through the cost and through the loss. Luke's gospel is especially critical of those who have earthly treasure and find their worth and see their joy in those earthly treasures. And it's jarring for his audience. And let's be honest, it's jarring for us, too, because the world does not set us up to think this way. We think possessions, we think materialism, we think I've got to have my hands on and got to have a lot of it. We're familiar with the parables that Jesus told of the rich fool. We're familiar with how he sends the rich young ruler away weeping because he asked him to give everything away. We're familiar with the great banquet where many make excuses and they go and invite the poor and the maimed and the weak and the afflicted and the outcast. All feature people with lots of stuff and lots of money missing out and giving more priority to themselves. Jesus' word to them is harsh if you read the whole story. We're familiar with Luke 12 where Jesus tells that story of the rich fool and he ends it this way. God says to the man, you fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And Jesus kind of comments on that parable about the rich man that had all the barns full of stuff and thought he had made it. Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God that values the wrong things and does not have any ounce of riches where it counts. 
and really loses the greater reward. Now, this is one of Luke's overarching themes. The idea of finding a greater treasure in and through following Jesus is preached throughout. And and after Jesus causes that rich young ruler to walk away weeping because he couldn't stand to give it away, the disciples were nervous. The disciples were scared because they were wondering, is Jesus going to ask them to give up more than they already had given up? I mean, Peter and the guys left their fishing business. They'd given a lot up for him. Jesus mentioned that he was going to die and would bear a cross. Were they going to have to bear a cross too? That was a real legitimate concern that they had. It would be for us too, wouldn't it? Peter spoke for the whole gang and tried to head off more demands that Jesus might expect from them in Luke 18. Peter says, see, we have left our homes and followed you. So in case Jesus is about to ask them to give up more, Peter says, whoa, 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 Jesus, I don't know what you're about to go, where you're about to do and and ask of us, but look, we've left our homes for you. I mean, what, who, who, else, who would do more than that? No one's done more than we've done for you. No one's left more than we've left for you. Jesus, come on. I hope you're not about to expect us to do more because we're a little nervous when you sent that rich guy away. And that, what, are you, what, are you, what are you trying to, 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 to say? And then Jesus said this. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or pa- parents or children for the sake of the gospel who will not receive many times more. In this time and in the age to come. He says, Peter, to answer your question, I'm going to ask you to give up more. I'm going to. You've heard me preach plenty. All of you are going to be asked to give up your lives for the gospel. But anyone that gives it all away, I promise you, there's none of you that will leave all of this behind who will not receive many times more in this life, but more so in the age to come. The question is, were they willing to trust Jesus with this promise? Maybe the greater question, how much more as Jesus, is Jesus talking about? What kind of more is he talking about? Acts tells the story they were willing and they did trust him with this. But mind you, Acts does not tell the story of them becoming wealthy or powerful. Acts tells the story of the church giving up, letting go, forbidding to put their hands on or keep their hands on anything of this world. And leading that charge is the Apostle Paul who gives and lives a life of total surrender. Come to Acts 21 and and you think he's already given enough. I mean, this guy has given everything and he talks about it to the Ephesian elders. Some try to convince him just this once, Paul, Why don't you take a little bit? Why don't you go easy a little bit? Paul, you've given more than anybody else would ever give. Paul, just this once, why don't you take? Just this one, why don't you keep? Just this once, why don't you take it easy? And what the next eight chapters are going to really show us is that Paul embodies Luke's message about Christianity in the church and embodies what Jesus asked for of a disciple and what he wants us to get from this story. Luke is going to underscore Paul's Christ-like passion, suffering, and perseverance to punctuate Jesus' teaching on discipleship that we just covered, or very quickly covered, and to provide us a pathway to follow and encouragement to keep us on that road. 
As we read this passage and retread these themes to conclude our message, I want you to keep all this in mind because Luke and Paul are going to give us something really incredible if we are willing to receive it. Read with me or follow with me Acts 21 verses 1 through 14. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them, the Ephesian elders, and set sail, running straight course, we came to Kos, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. Finding a ship over to Phoenicia, we went abroad and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed in Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. Finding disciples, we stayed there seven days, They told Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. So that's going to be our first item of interest. Start that verse or highlight that verse. They met some disciples who say to Paul through the Spirit, do not go. When we come up to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they they all accompanied us with wives, children, till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and returned home. And when we finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea, entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, remember Philip from Acts chapter 7 and 8, who was one of the seven original deacons, and stayed with him. Now, this man had four virgin daughters or unmarried daughters who prophesied. So Philip's whole family was gifted with the Spirit of God and with the gift of of teaching and preaching. As we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound by his own hands and feet, and said, and this is our second item of interest, Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews of Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. So this is twice now that the disciples are begging Paul, do not do this. Because as Agabus revealed it's not going to end well for you. And then Paul says, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. i got to tell you, these, this is one of the most powerful passage of scripture in the entire bible it's obvious that everyone thought paul following this passion and pursuit of of going to jerusalem was a bad idea a dangerous idea a way too costly idea some will read the different remarks by the disciples begging him through the spirit to stay away and interpret that paul going to jerusalem was putting him out of god's will I've heard that preach. Maybe you've heard that preach. Maybe a Bible, a study Bible has t- said, Paul went against God's will. If you've heard that, I want to make it very clear. That is not what the Bible's teaching, and that is not what this chapter is teaching. Let's break down these two episodes first, though. Verse 4, they met some disciples at Tyre, which is uh, north of Israel on the sea. 
some disciples, we don't know who they were, but they had been told by God or showed by God that Paul was going to face trouble, persecution, perhaps death at Jerusalem. So we believe that God showed them what Paul is about to face because he indeed faced it and, and we know what he goes through. Or if you don't, it's not good. Which even Paul had been given insight about it. More on that in a little bit. But what's most likely here, it's not that God did not show them what Paul was going to face, but they misinterpret what God showed them. They interpret God's word through their flesh and not through his spirit. But it says they were doing it through the spirit. That just means they were beseeching him in a spiritual way with, you know, as, hey, God showed us this, so obviously he's trying to keep you from going. But Paul was too spiritually king to be deterred, which again makes him such a role model. Paul would later write to us some important things about interpreting God's word or someone's version of it or something that is laid on somebody's heart. First Thessalonians 5, Paul says this, do not despise prophecies. And he's saying, I'm not saying that God can't lay something on somebody's heart if it's based on God's word. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. But test everything and hold fast to what is good. Let me tell you that last part. What is good is God's word. So if somebody says, hey, God showed me this, that's fine. I'm not doubting that. I'm not saying that God can't do that in some way. But if it doesn't line up with the book, it is not of God. Now, or if someone, hey, they say they heard something or they think something or they have seen something, but then they go and interpret it in a way that is not biblical, nothing wrong with it, nothing against that they heard it or saw it or felt it, but if they didn't do the right thing with it, it's not good. Does that make sense? That I'm not saying, and clearly these disciples saw something, but they did the wrong thing with it, which is a whole other sermon we could talk about God may lay something on your heart, but make sure that you go to the word to interpret it because the word is forever settled and it's unchanging and it's ground, it grounds us in what's true. So most likely the error was in their interpretation and their misappropriation. And let me explain that further by down, down in verse 10 and through 12. So then they meet a prophet. This is a New Testament prophet. Remember, in the New Testament day, there wasn't the Bible, so God was still revealing things to individual people because they were still compiling the book. So Agabus has been, has been revealed, it's been revealed to him that Paul is going to be arrested and Lord knows what's going to happen to him. And he grabs Paul by the belt and he begs Paul or he reveals to Paul what God showed him. And then in verse 12, when they heard things, when Luke and the gang and the disciples heard this, they immediately thought, well, Paul, you, you, you can't go through that. You've given up more than anybody. You've done more than anybody. You don't have to do this, Paul. Let's go plant a church somewhere. Let's go wherever, away from Jerusalem. You know what's going to happen if you go there. So I think the best way to understand this, yes, the Holy Spirit does reveal that Paul is about to face danger. Yes, he did receive that revelation. But the Holy Spirit didn't say this to prevent Paul, but to prepare Paul. You hear that? Nowhere in this is it trying to stop Paul from going. The Spirit is trying to prepare Paul for what he's about to face. And I think it's trying to teach the church a lesson that, hey, Paul's going to go through with this anyway, and wow, should not we follow that same model when we are given this opportunity? This is in line back in Acts 9 when Paul was first called to preach and first called, first saved. Um, Ananias revealed to Paul, you're going to face some trials. You're going to face a lot of suffering. And God told him from the start that he would face this. Again, this is in line with Jesus' teaching on discipleship. The disciples are the ones who take this and turn it into a warning 
They misinterpret God's word, whereas Paul rightly handles the message. Verse number 13, Paul says, hey, y'all, I'm ready for this. Y'all might not be ready for this. Y'all might not could do this. If y'all were in my shoes, that's okay, but I'm in my shoes, and God said this is the way he wants me to go, so I'm not going to be persuaded. Isn't that amazing? He would not be persuaded. How many of us would have been persuaded quickly? There was no budging Paul from doing the Lord's will. We got to think, do we have that same determination? Turns out Paul was foreshadowing all of this back in chapter 20, which is I want to spend the remainder of our time looking back at a few verses in chapter 20 where Paul foreshadowed all of this. He met with the Ephesian elders and he tells them, hey, y'all, I'm never going to see you again. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and be arrested. Next thing you know, I'm going to go to Rome. I don't know where I'm going to end up in the future. Probably going to, probably going to die soon, so y'all aren't going to see me again. 20, chapter 20 makes it very clear. Paul was never going to back down on his journey. Never going to back down. So I want to look back at that passage because it's got some really important things that help us make sense of all this. And I want to compare something that Paul says to something that Jesus said. Again, this is a similar journey that Paul's going on, that Jesus went on. Look back at chapter 20, verse 23 through 24. Paul said, he's telling the Ephesian elders that he taught them. We talked about last week, he talked about leadership and what it meant to serve the church and how we should follow that example. And then Paul says in verse 22, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me. So he knew this was gonna happen, right? But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy, underline that, with joy in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul has made his mind up. And he knows there's a reward, not just a cost. Now, in verse 22, he says, I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem. Compare that to this, Luke 13. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. This is the turning point in Luke, when Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem. Now, we've talked about this throughout Acts. We did this Sunday night again. That word, that word must in the Greek is that little word day. It is necessary for me to go. Now, in verse 22, that word I go bound is a form of that same word. It's deo instead of day. It's D-E-O. That word deo means bound or tied to a necessity, as in I've got to do this. I am wrapped around it. Wherever God's going, I'm going with him. This is the pivot point in Luke and Acts. The necessity, the burden, the compulsion, the passion, the desire to finish the mission that God has sent him on. Again, it's easy to get wrapped up in the cost of it all, but this is the sacrifice that both Jesus and Paul embraced because they understood the bigger picture. They knew that God's story, being included and being a part of God's story was the greatest blessing they could ever experience. Speaking of blessing, Paul's passion is even more explained and we'll wrap up by looking at what he says in verse 32 to 35. He's ending his sermon to the Ephesian people like this. So now, brethren, I commend you to God to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. I've not been in this for the earthly treasure. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. 
I have shown you in every way by labor in like, laboring like this that you must support the weak. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus. He says, I've shown y'all the model. I've shown y'all the way that it's about the gospel. It's about glorifying God. It's about reaching those that are without. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus. And if you're reading this passage and you say, well, I don't remember those words because they're not found in the gospels. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus. He said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now Luke records Paul leveraging a never before heard quote of Jesus, which I think is a pretty big deal, isn't it? I mean, you read the gospels, Jesus has said all he's gonna say, but then here tucked away in Acts 20, one last quote from Jesus, a pretty big one, mind you. I think this quote is the heading over the last portion of Acts in which he takes a similar sacrificial journey. Luke shows Paul taking a similar posture and pathway that Jesus took on the last mile of his life. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Think about this though. We all know the blessing that comes along with receiving, don't we? I mean, let's not be falsely humble. Let's not be ascetic. We enjoy receiving things. Who doesn't? We enjoy consuming things, right? We enjoy having things. We enjoy using things. I don't think nobody lives out, you know, completely detached from the world and materialism. If you do, we, we, you know, that, hey, God bless you. But all of us, we know the joy of receiving, don't we? We know the joy of dispo- having disposal and control. Of course we do. Who doesn't know the joy of receiving, We all know the joys and the blessing of receiving and possessing and consuming and using things for selfish purposes. I don't mean selfish in a bad way. I just mean in a self-seeking way, right? All of us, we know the blessing of receiving. So what do we do with this verse? Now, let me be clear, this verse doesn't deny that we don't have those joyful experiences or we can't have those joyful experiences. This verse just says that Jesus is on the record saying, it is more blessed to give. Whatever amount of blessing we can count being on the receiving end, Jesus guarantees us, this is a big deal, he guarantees us that there is a greater blessing, there are greater blessings in giving it all away. And if that makes your hands quiver a little bit, it's because we don't really know if we believe that, do we? What did Jesus say back in Luke 18? Much more. How much more though? Here's where our confessions that we trust in Jesus are tested. Do we trust, verse 35, do we trust that Jesus is telling us the gospel truth, that there is greater blessing in giving than receiving? The fact that we have a hard time giving instead of receiving reveals the answer. We still pursue and protect more than we give and we give more than we give. And that reveals that we really don't trust Jesus 100%, do we? And I'm talking about me, I don't know about y'all, but we all struggle with this. You know what it even more reveals? We are leaving so much joy on the table. We are leaving blessing on the table. And you know who that hurts? Us. I think this verse takes on so much more power and meaning in that it prefaces the last part of Acts, which tells the story of Paul giving, 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 giving it all away. 
He pours himself out. He divests himself of Paul and invests himself of Jesus in Jesus. The rest of this book is about Paul living a life of total sacrifice. I think the best picture of, uh, uh, that, that we can use for this is the picture of a teapot or a picture. We think the blessing is being filled up. We're the teapot, we're the pitcher that we pour the drink in. We think the blessing is being filled up, but Jesus says the blessing is being poured out into a larger, sometimes unseen pot. The difference is we can only handle so much before we lose and miss out regardless, right? We can only handle so much, yet we still try to cram it all in. But if we are constantly pouring ourselves into a larger vessel to which we belong to or are connected to, then again, there's so much more potential for blessing in that, isn't there? Yet we miss that so quickly, don't we? We continue along as if we have to scrape and claw and receive every ounce that we can, hold on to and mise and treasure, all the while we're missing out on the real prize. Again, this isn't just monetarily speaking, which is obviously true. This is about giving our lives away rather than receiving. And it's really a marvelous thing to see how laser-focused, how laser-focused Paul was on the glory and the joy exclusively found in Jesus and his way as we read the rest of the story. You know, back in Acts 9, when we first meet Paul, when he's called Saul, he is breathing out threats against the church. And the scripture says he is bound to go and arrest Christians. And here he is bound to go and pour himself out for the gospel. You see the connection there? He is bound formerly for the world and for gain. Here he is bound to give. I mean, he would go on to articulate it so powerfully in Philippians, a scripture that we reference a lot. He says in Philippians 3, Whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth. That's the much more, right? Much more, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. I don't miss it. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And this is the big one, verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And notice this. Look at verse 35 one more time. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Let me make sure we understand this. Paul doesn't say... And this does not teach that the blessing is found in giving, which leads, to more, which leads to more receiving. I mean, make sure this isn't twisted around because we do this with our faith. We do this with religion. The blessing is not found in giving that, oh, leads to more receiving. Well, I'm just going to give because God's going to give it back. God's, God's obligated to give me more because I'm giving to him. That's not what this is teaching. The blessing is found in giving for the sake of giving for the glory of God. You see that? You see, a lot of times people talk about God and generosity and they turn God into a slot machine and they say, well, I'm going to strong arm God because I'm going to put in and he better put out. That's not what the New Testament teaches. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's paganism. It's not glorifying God. That's gaming a system for self. Paul tells us and exemplifies 
There is a blessing, there is a reward, there is a joy, there is a prize exclusively found in giving over receiving. Almost as in when the opportunity comes to receive and take and hoard and possess in that moment, every single time, we have a choice we can make that will lead to a greater blessing. A blessing that is much more than we could ever imagine. A blessing that is found in a lifestyle of perpetual giving, not receiving. When the disciples try to convince Paul that he should not give, he'd given enough, he should not lay down, he should not take up his cross, he should not follow Jesus, he should not empty himself more. Again, back in verse, chapter 21, verse 13, Paul says, I am ready not only to be bound, but to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. And they saw he could not be persuaded. He said back in chapter 20, I do not count my life dear to myself. I am ready to finish my race with joy. So I got to ask you this, and this message might come back up in the holiday season. So this isn't just for us tonight. More people will hear it. But this is so important for us to hear. Is this our confession? The Bible is full of verses that make it clear that this song isn't about us. If it was, it'd be a short song and be a lousy song. No offense. It's about God and his glory and we are invited to step into his story. Do you feel that invitation tonight? We are invited to escape the brevity and the finite nature of our short stories and enter into the infinite glorious story of God. It may cost us, it will cost us, but it will not be about us, it will be about him. And it'll be remembered forever and ever and ever. But if we believe verse 35 of chapter 20, I gotta ask, why aren't we giving everything away? Why aren't we pouring everything into Jesus? Because we know how blessed it is to receive. I mean, we've got a lot. You've, we've all enjoyed life. I hope you have. If you haven't, I'm sure it's been pretty good, right? You've enjoyed life. You've received a lot. You've got a lot of stuff, and that's great. But you know what this verse says? There's more blessing in giving it all away. Now, I'll be honest with you. I've got a lot of stuff that I don't want to give away. People, connections, experiences, I don't want to give that stuff away. You couldn't convince me for a minute that somehow in giving all that away, there's more blessing in that? But I believe God's word. All of it. And you know what I'll confess tonight? I have left so much happiness on the table. Because you know what? Blessed means happiness. I have left so much joy on the table because I've convinced, you know what? I have been so brainwashed by this world that receiving is greater than giving. Two verses and we're done. I hope you'll add these to your memory banks along with a lot that we've talked about tonight. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Not to us, not to us, but to your name. Isaiah 26, verse 8. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and your remembrance are the desire of our soul. Do these reflect your heart? 
come on, we're so, you know, we're so brainwashed by this world. We think happiness is flesh and blood, copper and silver, brick and mortar, fun in the sun. And living a life of generosity doesn't exclude those things. It doesn't mean that we don't have those things. But it simply prioritizes something much more and prioritizes whatever, wherever God leads us, serving, doing for others, building a kingdom that honors him more than anything else. The hearts of true Jesus followers embody these verses in the New Testament story. These are hearts that are much more blessed than any other heart. And even ever heart, any other heart ever has been, ever will be, that settled for this world. That settled for a life of taking, receiving, protecting, and defending instead of giving. So I want you to, I've got to ask you this question in closing, and I want you to write this question down. Or at least remember it. How much more blessed could we be if we discovered and pursued with abandon the greater exclusive joy found in giving it all for the glory of God? How much more? Jesus said much more. Paul says much more. I just want to ask you, how much more? If we went to bed every night thinking how much did I leave on the table? I think that'd be a pretty good position to step into the next day and say, I'm not gonna leave any on the table today. There is greater exclusive joy. Again, don't take my word for it. Take the life of Jesus, take the life of Paul, take the word of God. How much more, you know what, we'll never know until we choose a life of giving over taking, sacrifice over protecting, divesting, over defending. I got to tell y'all, this chapter and this message has shook me up for the last several weeks. It took me a while to get ready for it. Every Christmas, I start thinking about this kind of stuff. And this verse was just jumping off the page at me, verse 35 in chapter 21. I'm thinking, man, how much do I leave on the table? How much do Christians leave on the table? How much more blessed could we be? I'd like to live my life knowing that there's so much more, there's that much more available if I just want it, if I just give it all for the glory of God. Thank you all for being with us tonight. I pray that we as God's people would let the world know where there's true joy found and where there's true reward found. And even if it costs us, we know the joy that's waiting around the corner. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this word that really could save our lives. Lord, I've spent so much time, money, energy, efforts in chasing a world. And I'm only a third of the way or a short way into my life. And I can tell you, I've spent so much of it on the wrong things. And yet you've still given me joy. You've still given me happiness. You've still given me so much. And it's your delight to do that. But Jesus offers me a better way. Lord, I don't want to see anybody here get to heaven and see, their, see on the table in front of them the picture, the vast, the cup of joy that could have been theirs that they just left it on the table. Lord, would you help everybody tonight see the joy in giving over receiving and as much as we enjoy receiving could you show us that there is much more
available to us. Lord, make us a much more generation. Raise up much more men and women who know the true joy that is found in giving their lives away for the glory of their King. We ask this in his name. Amen.